welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Ambassador Derek Hogan, U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Moldova, who previously served as the Deputy Executive Secretary at the Department of State and Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Baku, Azerbaijan. In the first part of this episode, we discuss the impact of COVID-19 on Moldova. We talk about uh, the political challenges that are in Moldova today, and we discuss Transnistria and what does Russian uh, involvement in that conflict look like. The second part of our conversation will bring my other colleague in, Nicole Andal, who is the director of CSIS's Diversity and Leadership and International Affairs Program. Together, Nicole and Derek talk about how they entered the field of Russian studies, their own career developments, what was important, and focusing on diversity in Russia and Eurasia area studies. Let's get started. Ambassador Hogan, we are so delighted to have you with us uh, and to unpack so much that's been going on in Moldova over the last few months. I have to say, in preparing for our conversation, I had to organize myself because there's so many <laughs> things I want to ask you about. But let me first start with the, the subject that is, uh, you know, overwhelmed all the globe for the last year, and, and that's the pandemic, COVID-19. Moldova has been hit particularly hard, uh, but they just received, I believe, uh, fairly recently, the first shipment of, of vaccines uh, through, the, through the COVAX initiative, something that uh, Moldovan President Sandu has called an unprecedented support from the European Union. So tell us just how it's been your experience over the, the, the last year in Moldova, and uh, how is everyone, the embassy uh, and civil society, managing this extraordinary epidemic? Thank you, Heather. Uh, this indeed uh, is the issue that is uh, permeating every aspect of life and work here, um, not just the diplomatic of work, of course, uh, but the lives of, of all Moldovans. The pandemic is, is hitting hard and continues to hit hard. The number uh, of deaths continue to rise. It's one of the highest uh, in, in Europe on a per capita basis. Infection rates, one of the highest in Europe as well. And of course, we have a struggling healthcare system. I mean, you know, I mean, this is a country that even before the pandemic was one of the poorest in, in Europe. And so dealing with this pandemic has really, really tapped uh, this government and really stretched it to its very limit. And so uh, when it comes to help and the assistance, uh, as the United States, we've been one of the uh, one of the strongest uh, uh, partners in in Moldova on the full range of of development, but specifically when it comes to COVID, uh, we've uh, through the COVAX mechanism are, are able to provide assistance to Moldova and other countries uh, that are still in development. And uh, and together with the European Union, we were able to facilitate the first uh, shipment of uh, vaccines uh, through the COVAX mechanism. More uh, is is on the way. 
Uh, we also recognize uh, that uh, the government needs to be going outside of the COVAX mechanism to be purchasing uh, vaccines on a bilateral basis as well. That's certainly what the neighbors of Moldova have done, are doing, and, and, and so Moldova is looking to do this. The challenge is both the financial constraints as well as the political constraints. This is a government that is not fully empowered to be able to take on this this epidemic as well as the other range of, of challenges because it's in caretaker status. The, uh, the government uh, resigned in, in December of, of 2020 and so what you have now uh, is a caretaker government and it's really not clear how long this caretaker government will remain uh, in place. And so because of that, uh, fighting COVID is like a boxer fighting with one hand behind its back. It's, it's really, really hard. Yeah, speaking of uh, the politics of the matter in the middle of the pandemic, the political situation in Moldova, incredibly tense. On the one hand, uh, the election of a reformist pro-European president, but uh, working with a parliament that is a majority of the Socialist Party, those that don't want a a pro-European orientation would like to strengthen their relationship with Russia. Um, you know, how do you steer through this? Uh, you know, the American ambassador in any diplomatic community is just at, at the centerpiece. How are you, as U.S. ambassador, managing this? Where on the one hand, we want to support uh, the country's aspirations in, in their European and Euro-Atlantic integration, but there's an epic struggle going on. I welcome your thoughts. And, you know, it looks like we're heading towards snap elections because, in fact, this government can't be formed with the current composition of the parliament. So how do we see our way through all of this? Heather, uh, when I arrived here uh, in the fall of 2018, I arrived with a very straightforward but admittedly very uh, difficult message for for the entire political class here. Uh, and, and, And that is the U.S. government sees two major threats to Moldova's independence, sovereignty, and European integration. The latter important because in 2014, Moldova signed the EU Association Agreement and the Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade uh, Agreement. So Moldova, in effect, already made its choice, and it was intended to move in that direction. Greater European integration, transatlantic community become more part of, of that. And so our assistance, our diplomatic engagement were and remain directed towards those ends. But these two challenges are, on the one hand, uh, it is uh, at the time, in particular, democratic backsliding and rampant corruption. And on the other hand, foreign malign influence. And there are connections. I mean, one can almost view it as two sides of the same coin. But we viewed these challenges as equally daunting, equally important, not one over the other. And so uh, we put it to the people, to the government, uh, that we were committed to helping Moldova achieve progress, incremental, recognizing this is a country that only has now 30 years of, of independence, but still the, the trajectory should be positive. Uh, and, and so we have seen over the past two and a half years, roughly, progress in that direction. I mean, first, when it comes to 
um, the summertime of 2018, uh, the the popular reaction to uh, the court system being manipulated by one individual uh, who who ran the country here, Vladimir Plahotniuk, and 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 how much strong opposition there was uh, to that. There was a real public outcry uh, that the Chisinau mayoral race was stolen. There was a pro-European, pro-reformer who won that race legitimately, but that was taken away from him by um, by this corrupt anti-democratic uh, system. So you fast forward to February 2019, when you had a really competitive uh, parliamentary election in which uh, Maya Sandu, the current president of the country, her party, as well as the party of another uh, pro-European uh, leader here, Anastasia, Andre Anastasia, the, uh, the Dignity and Truth Party, they as a bloc won a, a large number of seats in parliament. And, and over the next several months, we're able to negotiate with the socialists, the party that you just mentioned, a, a modus operandi in terms of forming a government. That was impeded by, again, Plahat Nuk. And, and when we saw that he was using the courts uh, to do that. We spoke privately, well, publicly in the sense of uh, saying this was wrong, but privately when it comes to the need for this individual to peacefully uh, transfer power. We weren't the only power, uh, only foreign uh, partner to do so. But shortly after these conversations, thankfully, he did step down. That then ushered in greater democratic freedom, uh, democratic space in the country, media rights became um, more respected, independent media had more access to information, the opposition um, leaders themselves felt uh, that they were no longer under direct threat as they used to be. And, and there became a, a real competitive space here in the country. You move that forward to uh, November 2020 when you had a presidential race and and because of that foundation being established where there's greater space for competition, uh, you see that Maya Sandu was able to win the election. Uh, she did it through a variety of uh, effective strategies, but bottom line is this was the Moldovan people's choice. We did not uh, get involved uh, directly in, in, in this. Diaspora got involved, uh, they voted in resounding numbers, and Maya Sandu won handily. Now we're in a situation where the country wants to continue down this path. They want to continue down the path of real reform. And, and Maya Sandu is not the only advocate for real reform. There are some in parliament who want this well as well, but unfortunately they're in the minority. There are others who would prefer to keep the status quo and even more worrisome would prefer to go back into a relationship where, where Russia in particular had, a, had an outsized role. So our message from fall 2018 really hasn't changed. We are encouraging the Moldovan government and the Moldovan people to continue to pursue democratic reform, continuing to uh, strengthen their resilience against foreign malign uh, and influence. And we have seen progress, but as you rightly noted, um, because there are these forces, both internal as well as external, that are really opposed to this march towards uh, democratic uh, consolidation. We, we are still on this stage of uh, unpredictability. It is very much possible that early elections uh, could happen uh, this year. This is certainly something uh, that the president is, is determined uh, to facilitate. The courts have something to say about this. The, the constitutional court has something to say about this. Uh, and parliament, this is a parliamentary republic, we must remember. 
they of course have something to say about this. So there is a battle in terms of narrative. There is a battle in terms of just pure, uh, what we see political tourism, where you see members of parliament migrating from one side of the aisle, if you will, to the other and back and forth. And and, and so it's a really sort of uh, chaotic uh, time right now, but we have been uh, maintaining a principled approach, respect for the institutions, respect for the constitutional court and, and the need uh, to figure out a modus operandi that gets to greater democratic reform economic prosperity, as well as greater independence and sovereignty. I mean, that's it's an extraordinary journey when you think of it. Uh, but again, it always goes back to those basics. Strong institutions. Those right. institutions must be transparent. And both of those factors work towards the dignity of the individual and right. the individual's right for choice of their future. So very, very powerful. In our time left, Eric, I, I do have one question, and this this sort of gets back to your question of the backsliding, the you know the malign influence um, that's certainly exacerbating all of the the tensions that you've outlined, and that's Transnistria. It, this is something that President Sandu, when she uh, becoming president, had asked for the withdrawal of Russian forces that are on uh, that are in Transnistria. Again, this is a frozen conflict. From the, from the breakup of, of the Soviet Union. Um, and as we've seen, whether it's Nagorno-Karabakh, um, events in Ukraine, you know, these conflicts don't remain frozen. They are used as political leverage uh, to prevent a country from moving freely uh, with their own alliances and their, your, their orientation. Um, has there been any progress diplomatically uh, in resolving the five plus two process, which was trying to bring uh, some some diplomatic uh, engagement? Uh, how do you see this issue playing out again, particularly in light of events uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh? Again, something that you followed so closely when you were deputy chief of mission yeah. in Baku. Thank you for that question. I would say that Transnistria is being effectively managed in the sense that it, it is right now, there is not a lot of potential for it to become a Nagorno-Karabakh or any of the uh, more volatile regions in Georgia or Ukraine, for example. And that's in large part because of the five plus two process, I would say United States is being an observer, official observer, and then an, an active participant in this process. I also uh, think it's an interesting alignment of interest right now. I would say that neither Russia, nor the EU, nor the US wants to make the Transnistria or, or really put this issue as the front and you know topic uh, for the Moldovan people. First of all, from the US perspective, this is not our role. Our role is to support uh, the priorities and interests of the people uh, of Moldova. But second of all, there is so much internal struggle going on right now. There is there is little bandwidth actually. There's little bandwidth among the political elite uh, on the right bank, that is uh, in Moldova, uh, Chisinau, to actually really take this issue head on. There's always been that idea that once things stabilize here, you know, the the five plus two would be able to really uh, you know it, you know put the pedal to, to the metal there and and really accelerate this settlement process. But because of the internal struggles, that hasn't really been uh, a possible. 
I would say uh, that when it comes to the progress in, in, in particular, there have been a number of small confidence building measures to keep the parties uh, more or less focused on continued diplomatic engagement, even if it's at the level, you know, maybe not in the front and center attention of the most senior politicians here, both here as well as in Tiraspol. Uh, but there have been at the working level uh, some continued discussions, for example, in coordinating the approaches to fighting COVID or to dealing with um, you know, schools, um, you know, uh, Romanian language schools and, and Transnistria. Um, there's been some talking between the two sides when it comes to uh, prisoners, uh, quote unquote, political prisoners on both sides of the Nistru and how they're being treated. Um, some behind the scenes conversations there. There's been some effort uh, underway to look at the integration of the telecommunications uh, a network. But these are more sort of discrete uh, issues, more technical in nature, very important, will be very important, particularly when it comes to dealing with the settlement properly. Uh, but, uh, but right now, I would say the focus of the elite, certainly in, in Chisinau, the leadership in, in Chisinau, is to try to reach uh, some sort of stability here. Uh, the Transnistrians, they have made it clear that they, they want to get to the negotiating table and, and have a partner you know, that will be around for a while. They've watched a number of governments in Chisinau come and go, and so, so they're looking for a little bit more stability here as well. But for the most part, this is a conflict that is being managed effectively through the five plus two uh, process. It's an extraordinary moment when you have so much going on and it's now is not the time to disrupt a, a frozen conflict. It sort of speaks <laughs> exactly. to just the enormous challenges. But no, as I said, it's, it's why Moldova uh, is so consequential uh, on so many levels. Obviously, the pandemic, uh, you know, continuing this struggle for, for its future and, and of course, a, a future of a, of a whole and integrated country. So thank you so much. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Heather. And I'm really glad uh, you chose this topic because I think this is a country um, that the U.S. can point to and, and say, yes, it's difficult. Democracy, democracy building when you only have 30 years of sovereignty and independence is even more difficult, but it is possible. It is possible to uh, achieve uh, progress here. And, and so I, I'm just glad uh, that you're helping keeping this topic uh, on the minds of our American compatriots. Thank you so much. Derek, that was a fantastic conversation. Now I'd like to turn to something that we're focusing on at CSIS. Of course, the entire field is focusing on, and that is increasing diversity in Russia and Eurasia studies. I am so delighted, Nicole, that you could uh, join us for this conversation. Uh, as, as director of the CSIS Diversity and Leadership Program, you're, you're our ringer. You're actually a Russia studies major. You have a BA from Howard University in Russia studies. So I want to just ask you, what attracted you to that area of study? And as in your own fantastic career, whether that was at Airbus or as senior counsel to a law firm, how did you first get involved in the Russia studies? Hi, Heather, and, and thank you again for having me on. You know, it's it's kind of funny. So I'm a I was in high school in the late 80s when everything was changing. And when I was in a, a senior in high school, um, about that time, we started getting our first uh, classmates from, you know, what was soon to be the former Soviet Union um, to my high school outside of Cleveland. And I 
I just made some new friends and also had the chance, you know, in my senior year to take Russian studies. And, you know, frankly, I chose Russian studies because I'd taken all the French classes and I had none left to take by my senior year. So you could take Russian, I think Arabic or Japanese at my high school. And I chose Russian because it was the only one that still uh, read from left to right. But also I had these friendships and started becoming very interested in the region. And it was beyond, you know, kind of what we had been fed, uh, you know, during our formative years with all of the, you know, Red Dawns and Rocky Fours and all those movies that were really um, instrumental in forming our idea about that part of the world. So, you know, through that language class, uh, it, it just opened up a whole new part of the world to me. And by the time I got to college at Howard, um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to focus on as a major, but Russian studies was an option. And since I had enjoyed it so much in high school, I decided to continue with that, you know, in college. And by now it was, you know, the early 90s and, you know, job opportunities were opening up in the region that were much different from the ones that had existed in the past. And there was just so much interesting work to do. And so many, you know, ways to study and look at the region that were refreshing and new and open. And it was so full of hope and, and promise. So that's how I started my, my foray into, into Russian studies. And then I even continued with that in law school, getting a certificate in Russian and East European studies. Well, I love that story, Nicole, that love of language, the opportunity to take those languages and then being able to carry it through. Now, there's a wonderful connective tissue between you and Ambassador Hogan, and that is the University of Pittsburgh. So Nicole graduated from law school, University of Pittsburgh, that's where she has her JD. And Derek, if I read your bio correctly, uh, you're an undergraduate from the University of Pittsburgh. So I may ask you the same story. How did you get, uh, you know, interested in this particular field of international studies, and then maybe how you how you gravitated towards Russia and the post-Soviet space where you've spent so much of your career as a foreign service officer. Thank you, Heather and Nicole. Look forward to talking to you as well. Um, similar, similar experience, I, I, except mine, I guess, goes back a little bit earlier to when I was 16 years old. So in my, my junior year in, in high school, uh, my parents, to their great credit, uh, enrolled me in a a a, um, a governor school. It's called the Pennsylvania Governor School of Excellence for International Studies. And you know, I was a uh, although we were living in Pennsylvania, I spent the first first let's say 12, 13 years of my life for the most part in California, in Southern California. So my idea of spending a great summer was like on my skateboard, you know, skating down the streets of that time of Santa Monica. Uh, uh, but now living in Pittsburgh and my parents were just really thinking about, okay, Derek, you're getting close to high school graduation. You know, what's, what's next in your future? Do you expect to spend your time skateboarding? So they found this program for me and it really opened my eyes to international affairs and specifically to U.S. Foreign Service officers came to speak to us uh, and end this summer uh, program, and and it was it was 1990 uh, when I was in the summer program. So you can imagine all the things happening around the world in the year 1990, and they were just describing the role that the State Department and specifically uh, even they uh, played, uh, you know, putting their two grains of, of sand into the reshaping of the world. It, it, I just got hooked, uh, to be honest, right then at 16 years old. And, you know, I, I saw then that I could be 
uh, a true patriot, you know, serving, representing my country overseas, um, and at the same time, helping other countries reach their full potential. That to me was equally important. And, and I saw what we were doing actually in uh, the former uh, uh, Soviet space and, and, and our efforts to help these 15 countries in total uh, you know, reach their full potential, chart their own course towards greater independence and sovereignty. And, and, and so that was birthed in me at that time. So at the University of Pittsburgh, studied international relations and, and economics, and in graduate school, American foreign policy. And, and I was able to join the service, foreign service, two weeks after my graduation from grad school. So that's how I got into this. What a great story. And again, it just speaks to that, that high school experience, how powerful that, that was. And I feel like a the University of Pittsburgh owes us a shout out for uh, highlighting two of their <laughs> fantastic uh, uh, graduates. I love it. Okay, so Nicole, um, as we were discovering uh, the Nicole had uh, Russia area studies, then we discovered that she found herself in Donetsk, uh, Ukraine. Wow. And so, I, Nicole, you're going to have to tell us that story. But Derek, hold on, because as soon as Nicole's done with her story, I'm going to ask you what your favorite story is of a, a post-Soviet uh, or Russia uh, adventure. So, Nicole, okay. tell us about your Donetsk adventure first. So by the time I'd gone to law school, I knew that I definitely wanted to work in international law and policy and specifically in, um, the, you know, in Russia and Eastern Europe. And Eastern Europe. I hadn't had the chance to do a study abroad in the region. You know, like Derek, I I started college in 1990. And so uh, my parents were not really on board with me traveling to the region during that time. Things were not as stable as they would have liked. So I I went to France, uh, you know, for my study abroad. But by the time I got to law school, I felt like I had missed an opportunity. And it just so happened that our Center for International Legal Education at Pitt had just established a relationship with what was, you know, the Donetsk National University Law and Economics faculty. And they had sent faculty over there, I think once or twice, but they were really looking for a more student-based exchange type of relationship. And they also wanted a student that could go over and do some teaching at the same time. So I, I just happened to express my interest in, in the region to the uh, director of that program, Professor Brand, and he just became my, uh, my mentor and my champion and put me forth as uh, the first uh, student to go over to Donetsk for a semester of law school. So I did a semester of law school in Donetsk. Uh, I, I helped teach one class, but it was the most formative um, personal and educational experience I've, I've ever had. You know, I, I had some, I, I didn't know much about Donetsk. Um, I knew something about Ukraine. I wasn't sure how I would be received. It was really hard to leave. It was just, again, just such an incredible, rich experience and to get a legal education in a, a newly formed democracy was un, unbelievable. I love that story. I because I, I love it. So it's so mutual. You were able to teach and ben, and they were benefiting from you. And of course you benefited from them. 
Okay, Derek, every foreign service officer, well, they have have lots of tales, and I love listening to all of them, but what was your, for you, one of the standout uh, experiences professionally, personally, whether that was when you served in Baku, Azerbaijan, as deputy chief of mission, you served in in Belarus and Minsk. I would just love one story, one of your favorites of an experience that moved you very deeply uh, in your career. I... Think back to my time in Minsk, Belarus. I was the head of the political and economic section. And um, I had the opportunity uh, to organize with my ambassador at the time um, a pretty high profile public event to celebrate Black History Month. And as you know, uh, Belarus, as, as with many of the post-Soviet countries, is a relatively homogenous uh, society, homogenous country. And, and during the Soviet days, um, the, the Soviet government really liked to poke fun and, 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 and poke holes into the, into the American narrative of, of being a country you know, that treats everyone equally and so forth. And they were able to say with somewhat you know, with some accuracy, uh, that that has not necessarily been the case for African Americans and other persons of color, and and so it, it was around the time of um, Martin Luther King's birthday, and and but but we celebrated right at the beginning of Black History uh, Month, and and with the ambassador we organized this very high-profile event where we invited Belarusian government officials from the foreign ministry and uh, media, state media, as you know, in Belarus, uh, all state-controlled media, uh, but they came to this event and uh, civil society, a, a, a wide range of the political and economic class. And, you know, it was a novel thing for them to see an African-American in Minsk, Belarus, not a student because they did have a number of African students, but an African-American diplomat uh, speak to uh, this group in Russian on our travails and on our triumphs as a people, African-American people. And, and, and I use that speech to, to show uh, the importance and the urgency of all peoples around the world pursuing their quest for dignity, for freedom, uh, for, for equal rights. And I never made a direct dig at the authoritarian regime uh, in, in Belarus, but I was able to speak from experience using our own story and sad moments of our own story to speak about the need, uh, indirectly so, for the Belarusian people to pursue their freedoms uh, as well. And it wasn't lost on people, but they took it, they received the message. It was still publicized and press and so forth. So that was a very emotional, a very impactful uh, event in my life. Oh my gosh, that is such a, a powerful story. And, and you think about uh, a great deal of the Soviet active measures, Russian disinformation, misinformation is to amplify uh, racial tensions in the United States. What a powerful antidote that was to say, you know, of our many shortcomings, we always try to be, uh, you know, that perfect union that we're striving for. So that that's fantastic. My last question uh, to you both is really, you know, how do we strengthen increased diversity 
in Russia and Eurasia studies. Nicole, you highlighted the role of a mentor. Eric, you had highlighted sort of this exposure to foreign service officers. I would welcome your, your thoughts, your ideas, what you thought made a, a difference, and then how we as professionals can increase diversity in our field. Nicole? Yes. So throughout my career, you know, after I left, I graduated from law school and entered the government. What was really impactful in my career, um, particularly in serving in, you know, these foreign affairs, national security positions, was that we always, for myself and others, you know, in this space that look like us and have have similar background, finding those allies in the workspace really matters. You know, and allyship can take all sorts of forms. It can take the form of person in a senior leadership role, being particularly mindful of the professional and personal experiences of their underrepresented employees, but it can also take the form of um, having a really clear eye for talent and taking off those filters to the extent that you can when you see a, a young professional in your workspace and, and, and making sure that their potential which is obviously not just for their own personal benefit, but it's for the benefit of the organization as well, can be nurtured and, and developed. You know, I think for those of us who, you know, spent a lot of time working in the region, for example, when I was at the Department of Energy, and my team going over to the caucuses quite a bit, having those conversations with my senior managers about the need to treat me like everybody else on the team it sent a message to our foreign partners of uh, what it meant to be, you know, not just an American, but also a representative of the U.S. government, you know, a member of our society, how we worked together as a team mattered, you know, so that I would almost always be the only one of, of my sort on, on a particular delegation or on a particular trip. But again, that allyship I had with my, with my, my bosses and my peers made it a really meaningful professional experience. And, and so that that positive experience is one that I share with as many young people as I can. You know, and just the, my final point is also for those of us who have worked in this space and have a, a, a achieved certain levels in our careers, I think we do have a responsibility to reach back out to the next generation to show them what's possible for me. That possibility came in the form of mentors, but also came in the form of Condoleezza Rice, who anytime somebody would say, well, why do you want to study that? I'm like, well, look at Condoleezza Rice, right? So the setting that example and, and being an ally, I think, are the two ways, at least on the very human level, that we can increase diversity in our space. I think Nicole really uh, hit the nail on the head there. I, I mean, the only thing I can add to that is, is, is just thinking a little bit more specifically about of foreign agencies or U.S. foreign affairs agencies, including the State Department, where uh, we have to be intentional about uh, what our goals are. When it comes to across the board, uh, increasing diversity, retaining a diverse talent, it, it's one thing to get them into the door. It's another thing to keep them in, inside and, and thriving on the inside. Uh, we 
have programs such as the Pickering Fellowship, that, that's the program that I was a part of. There's another one called the Rango Fellowship where, where they have been the major contributor to our diversity numbers uh, in the Foreign Service. And, and just recently, the department committed to doubling uh, the numbers. So that's a step, that's very much a step in the right direction. And I hope we can in, in, in increase uh, that even more. And, and I'm speaking about these programs because I remember when I was a, a deputy chief of mission, and in fact, I've uh, even done so here as well um, in, in Moldova, where, where I was intentional about going to the Pickering and Wrangell fellowships and saying, hey, send me your people. We will find accommodations for them. We will get them interesting work, uh, you know, get them to, to be part of interesting work that we're doing here or when I was uh, deputy for mission in Baku, Azerbaijan, uh, because all of these programs have a summer component where they spend a summer overseas. Uh, and, and they work at one of our embassies. And so I wanted them to come to the former Soviet space. I wanted them to come uh, uh, to the countries in Eastern uh, Europe so they can be exposed to that. And so, you know, I'd had in one summer, I think three or four Pickering fellows and, and then sitting down and having lunch with them every month and, and taking them to our meetings and so forth. Because I wanted them to see what life and work is like here. I wanted them to experience it and then talk to me about it. And, and, and we can share, uh, you know, some some lessons learned in terms of my time in this world as well. I never will forget, this is one of the most, most impactful experiences in, in my life. I was applying for a senior position in Moscow uh, and the deputy chief of mission at the time, he's no longer in the foreign service, but, it, but, but when I was interviewing him and interviewing with him, he already knew me of my, uh, because we worked together when I was in the secretary, when I worked for Secretary Powell, he was in a senior position at that time as well. And so we knew each other. And, you know, after talking to me about my qualifications and so forth, he says, well, Derek, you know, I know you, I, I think highly of you, but the reason why I want to put you in this position is because I want our mission here in Mission Russia, as well as the Russian government and the Russian people to see that we take seriously diversity. I want them to see both within the mission as well as without the mission. I want them to see persons of color in senior positions. Obviously you're qualified, but this is something that matters to me even more. This is something, and, and, and this is something that matters to the ambassador. It was Ambassador Bill Burns. Uh, you know, he, both of these gentlemen said this was something that was very important to them. And, and, and so, you know, I was selected uh, uh, for the position and I obviously it opened up my world even more. Uh, it, it created opportunities for me to uh, to progress in my career and, and and help others. But but it was that intentionality uh, that that I will never uh, forget. And this was uh, um, um, a a white male, but he was someone who was that committed to diversity. And I think we need to be honest about this. I mean, if we're serious about diversity, well, that means making choices. It never means diluting the importance of qualification, competency, capacity. What it means is, is taking all of these factors into account when it comes to you know, lining up our resources and saying, okay, how do we look? Do we look like America? Do we look, I mean, are we really reflecting America in this particular organization, in this particular mission, or in this particular bureau? And if not, what are we gonna do about it? I think intentionality matters a lot. You both have just given some awesome piece of, of advice and they're just worthy to underscore them. You know, mentorship, Opportunity like the Wrangle and the Pickering Fellowships. Uh, leadership by example happens within the team, 
You're showing how we wish to be seen. Nicole, you were saying to treat me as an equal. And then the leadership by example externally that we can show uh, other countries, other civil societies, how important this is. And Derek, you're so right, the intentionality. We do so because it speaks to our values of who we are. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much to you both. That's our show for today. This has been a great conversation. And if you would like to learn more about diversity and leadership in international affairs, I encourage you to visit our CSIS website. Please check out the show notes for the link to this page, as well as Ambassador Hogan and Nicole's bios. For those of you who haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or leaving us a rating and review. If you're not an iTunes user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify. And again, keep spreading the word. Finally, I'd like to take the time to thank everyone who works so hard to make this podcast happen, including our associate fellow, Cyrus Newland, and our producer, program manager, Roxana Gabudulina, and the entire CSIS External Relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. We look forward to welcoming you back for our next episode.